Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. On this week's News Station podcast, we talk about the election so far. You ask us, what does the new speaker mean for Parliament? And Anoush explains the contents of a new report on food bank use in Britain. So it is the first full week of the general election campaign. And it has been, I wouldn't describe it as a vintage display. <laughs> I mean, I think in order, actually, I would say I wouldn't describe it as a vintage display for anyone. I think actually the SNP have had a quite slick yeah. uh, rollout, which you'd expect, seeing as they've wanted to do this for some time and they've been laying the groundwork. The Lib Dems campaign doesn't really seem to have a theme, which semi makes sense to me because they didn't expect to do this till quite recently when they suddenly went, oh wait, there's a majority in this parliament to do Brexit. We should therefore try and get another one as quickly as we can. Labour's campaign is kind of like Similar I to mean, last time. It's, yeah, it's, it's the campaign they've wanted to fight for a long time and they're doing a pretty good job of it, as we'd kind of expect. Yeah, um, they've had is, no disasters yet. Yeah, this is very much the director's cut as far as, as, as campaigns go. The Conservatives, who've been kind of gagging for this election since September, have not. it's not been a vintage campaign thus far. No, I mean, I remember when we were talking about it last week, I thought when they started off with the stuff that we were talking about, about how a vote for Labour means two referendums and that kind of thing, I thought this is a vintage modern Conservative Party campaign in that they're sort of making these points about potential coalitions and endless voting and and stuff like that, a threat to the union, independence and things like that, which, which would be a very sort of Tory way of going into a campaign in a similar way that they did in 2015 quite successfully. But all of that kind of just disappeared, didn't it? It's, it's not been very consistent. I'm always reminded of something that someone who worked for Cameron said to me at the time in 2015, where they went, they were like, if you have to tell a journalist explicitly what you want the election to be about and what to write, you've done something wrong. Yeah. It, should be, it should be obvious to anyone from the announcement. Oh, right. So the dividing line for this election is. Yeah. And, you know, the, the slightly strange thing is, is, there is a pretty clear dividing line that they want, which is get Brexit done and insert party policy, up policy preference of whatever group they're currently standing in front of. 
can be done once we've got Brexit done. Mm. Instead, well, so I think I think there are two things. So let's just recap some of the, the misfortunes of the last week. Yeah. So Alan Cairns had to resign as Secretary of State for Wales after it emerged that a former aide of his, who was also briefly the assembly candidate in the seat which mirrors his, yeah. uh, it's a key module in, in both elections, as it were, had collapsed a rape trial the in the view of the trial judge as a deliberate act of, of sabotage. Yeah. The trial then went ahead separately and, and the man was convicted. It emerged, well, it emerged and he may have known about it as soon as he said. He's now resigned as Secretary of State minutes before Boris Johnson's campaign launch. Yeah, so that was bad. Further bad news for the Conservatives from Wales is the candidate in Gower who was found to have said on Facebook that she thought that the cast of Benefit Street should have been put down. So there are still calls for her to go or for the party to drop her. So for me, at least, I don't think that's as much of a problem for them. Like, it's... If you were asking me to do lists of reasons why I do not intend to vote Conservative, (laughs) you know, attitudes like that would be quite high up the list. But I just think in terms of their electoral coalition, like saying the people on Benefit Street should be... Because in a way, right, there's this slight weirdness with any kind of, like, analysis of, of a gaffe, mm. which I kind of felt a lot in 2017, and indeed through a lot of what I think was the first phase of Corbyn's era, journalists would go, oh, that's a gaffe, when it's just like, that's his electoral strategy. And his electoral strategy yeah. might be wrong, whereas, yeah, I thought that, um, well, yeah, I mean... Obviously, Jacob Rees-Mogg going, it's common sense to have left Grenfell Tower. And also his apology was then even worse because he apologised for the common sense thing. But he essentially reiterated, basically, well, knowing what we know now. No, knowing what you know now, you still should not leave a tower block if the the fire brigade tell you not to. Not least because, I promise not every week of the election, I, I will, you know, go on about what happened at Grenfell. But since Grenfell Tower happened... There have been quite literally tens of thousands of fires in tower blocks yeah. where compartmentation has worked. Because, and so what phase two will of course seek to discover is, was it a problem of fire safety standards, a problem of fire safety inspections, or both, that led to the cladding being a fire trap. But it is like, it is insanely dangerous for a public figure to go on air and go, why of course you should try and like blunder your way down the stairs yeah, um, I mean, this is this is one of the big challenges of Grenfell, which is how do you ensure that these tower blocks have fire policies that people will adhere to after seeing this news that actually they, you know, the stay put, which is standard fire procedure in these buildings, didn't work. The public sort of service now is to be like, no, that is the yeah. that is the standard thing that you should continue to do, and it's actually other problems that that have meant that that didn't work in that case. So, as I, I agree with you, it's completely irresponsible for him to say that, and then also to say I don't think it's about class or race, when really he's just giving himself away, isn't he? Because if it wasn't about class or race, then it wouldn't matter that Jacob Rees-Mogg has never lived in a tower block, so has no idea what the standard fire procedure is in, in tower blocks. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to the thing that we did say at the time, which is that it was a mistake to put in the cabinet someone who's never been in the front bench, whose whole kind of, like, political appeal is basically going, I am the raw id of the Tory party. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we'll look back at this at this end of this election and we'll go, oh, it turned out that was the message that went viral on Facebook. But if I were working in CCHQ, particularly if I were in their digital team, every morning I would wake up going, oh, God, is today the day when, you know, 10 million people will see 
will you know will share cabinet watch as cabinet minister does some weird posh thing. Yeah, I yeah. just I just think he's a massive liability when they have. There are loads of people who are who are like well into Brexit who I just think come across as more normal. Like, I just think, you know, like, Steve Baker is across a policy, you know, whether it's the NHS reforms, or can he, he can articulate someone, he went to a normal school. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he is not going to, when he's on air, you know, he has all of the same credibility, but he is just not going to, like, have visibly not read the report, visibly not been across the policy, visibly not been across the things that this government is actually doing that are better than what May was doing. I mean, just... That just would not have happened. Yeah. There is no reason to do that other than, you know, elite self, self-reproduction self of, yeah, let's get another Etonian in here. Why the hell not? Yeah, well, this is the big problem, isn't it, for the Conservatives, is that Jacob Rees-Mogg is one of the people they used to use, or at least a certain part of the party used to use as their sort of spokesperson. Yeah. So while he was on the back benches, he was the spokesperson for the people who were opposing Theresa May's deal. Now he's on the front benches, he was the person who was put out to deliver the Brexit message. But now we're in a general election campaign, he has to talk about things that aren't just the Brexit message, right? And And this shows, you know the mask slips or whatever and he just can't do it he can't do it in any way that's remotely helpful for boris johnson so just adding to that story andrew bridgen then tried to defend him and also had to apologize for his comments where he said that it would take a clever person to leave the building and don't we want clever people to run the country or something yeah it was it was not great and then there's been the kind of added thing and i i don't think this is so much a gaffe uh, it's more a kind of like, um, when I started out on the Telegraph's morning email, a press officer for one of the political parties complained about something and, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, they wanted to talk to me about it. And I talked to my then boss, Ben Brogan, about it. And he went, he said, look, he said, there are two options. One, if you don't care about building a relationship with this person, just tell them where to go. But he said, the other one is to go, look, there's a certain amount of space in the email. It can be filled with, you know, it can be filled with your briefing. It can be filled with the other lot's briefing. The choice is always yours about whether or not you want to you want to fill the space or have it filled for you. Yeah. And the the kind of so there's this report by uh, the Intelligence and Security Committee into Russian uh, alleged Russian involvement in elections across the world, including in the in United Kingdom. Yeah. That is being sat on by Downing Street, and I do not think there is a caucus of voters who are moved by the Russia report. However, I think there is a caucus of voters who could be removed, moved by literally anything else yeah. that are instead like waking up, hearing like the government has not said that it'll publish a report. Yeah, well, this is the and, thing. It's the opportunity cost for yeah. the Conservative Party, right? It's the same with these with these things that Jacob Rees-Mogg, etc., have been saying and the lack of the report. is That's what's filling the airwaves when people wake up and listen to the radio in the morning or turn their TV on at night or listen to drive time when they're driving back home from work or, or whatever, taking the kids to school. They're hearing this stuff instead of the stuff that the Conservatives want to get out there about their campaign. Yeah. And I agree with you that probably the report in itself, as you wrote really well um, today, is is probably not going to be the explosive thing that changes voters' minds. But the fact that it's that it's being sat on and delayed creates this sort of vacuum of commentary that makes it sound like the government's a bit underhand or something's happening that is suspicious, involving people in Downing Street and Russia. And it also means that every time ministers want to say that Jeremy Corbyn is sympathetic to Vladimir Putin, they just then get asked about the Russia report. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, he just, he's just like a... He's a classic example of, like, you know, like, why don't we just lead with our glass jaw? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing I think is interesting, though, right, is that everyone, uh, you know, journalists... So obviously it tends to fight the last war. 
And I think there's a strong element that, because last time a lot of people were surprised by what happened, there's an element of people being primed to go, oh, it's happening again, they're fighting a bad campaign. Yeah. And actually, the thing is, is so far, I don't think they actually are fighting a bad campaign. I think they have a slightly different problem to the one they had last time, right? Last time, actually, what Downing Street was doing day-to-day was entirely irrelevant to the problems with the campaign. Mm. Many of the people who were the problem with the campaign had senior roles in Downing Street, but the, the problems were located in CCHQ. I mean, I made a joke about this on Twitter, and I'll probably continue to make jokes about it because it's very low-hanging fruit. But it's not like there is a grid in CCHQ going, day one, say something crass about Grenfell Tower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> day two, you know... Sit on this report in order to spite dominant grief. Yeah. <laughs> These are all decisions, whether it's appointing Jacob Brees Mogg, whether it's not just printing a report, which I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound like the conspiracist I in fact am, but there is no <laughs> way that a report that has been signed off by the security yeah. services is going to embarrass the incumbent government. It just isn't. Like, just that is just not how, you know, people who are already security cleared investigating the security services work. That, that ain't going to happen. These are all decisions made by Downing Street. Now, Downing Street is not running this campaign, right? Don Cummings is not running no. the general election campaign. You know, ditto, Alan Kearns, political aide, doing what he did, is, is not a decision made, you know, you know, Isaac Levito didn't sit there and going like, ah, and day four. <laughs> um, now, I think re- there are two reasons why that is important, although they end in quite radically different conclusions. The first is that... Now we're entering the campaign proper. Downing Street's role in the campaign will be as a prop. Its bad decisions do not inform us one way or the other about whether or not CCHQ will run a bad general election campaign. The flip side of that is that I think one of the things which bailed out Theresa May after a strategically inept, you know, really bad, you know, not just the kind of big things that people noticed, but it was on a small day-to-day level, a poorly done campaign. Yeah, yeah. Was that the, the underlying product was appealing to enough people for the issues of, of selling it to not... The problem here is actually the underlying product is so much more toxic and unappealing. So maybe then actually even if the next six weeks are a lot better, mm. then it doesn't matter. Also, right, narrative is self-fulfilling. The fact people are primed to go, this campaign is bad will change how this campaign is covered. So, yeah, and what do you sort of... Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I think I think you're right that what really matters is whether they get the things right that Theresa May got wrong that we don't really read as much about. So, you know, when I went to go and visit seats and speak to Tory activists after the election, they were saying, oh, well, they were sending everyone to the wrong seats to campaign. They didn't know what the marginal seats were. Is there such thing as a safe seat anymore? And it's whether or not they've got those kind of battles on the ground better organised, which I'd imagine that they probably would. You know, parties always learn lessons from the places that they were targeting last time. They've got more data from the actual work that they did last time. And it wasn't that long ago that they did it. So you'd you'd assume that voters' preferences in areas that they have data on haven't changed a huge amount in two years. So you'd assume that they will be able to do that sort of granular stuff that we don't really see or don't read about better than last time. So that that that's a sort of unknown quantity and I suppose we'll find out more when we when we go out to the various constituencies that that we're going to report on so that will be interesting to see and you know they've got quite a big mass of manpower on the Labour Party side to contend with in terms of that kind of thing momentum you know they they target the seats that make big headlines but they also go to places which the central Labour Party might not have bothered sending lots of people to for example they've got a lot of people on the ground 
Well, so because the, the interesting thing is, so um, so last week I columnised about you know the great hope in the Labour Party has always been look what happened in twenty seventeen. Here's why it's different. Here's why it might be the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I couldn't get into because I just ended up in this kind of horrible nested paragraph of semi-contradictions is that <laughs> in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn had this advantage that he had a Labour HQ with a lot of institutional memory. However, a lot of those people, while day-to-day working to protect Labour MPs, were also day-to-day trying to find ways to winkle Jeremy Corbyn out. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the most effective Labour Party conference, and indeed the most effective period of Corbynism was in 2018 when they had essentially got rid of all of the experienced people who were plotting against him. They had quite a lot of experienced people who might not have been happy he was there but had accepted that they could not and should not seek to change it. So they had a kind of almost perfect blend of people who were on side and institutional memory. Now that now it's essentially a HQ of people, some of whom are very talented but are at the beginning of their careers, and no institutional memory. And the interesting question is, which one of those in 2017, 2019 are you better off with? Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be the only variable, but it is a variable. And as you say, right, the Tories last time surprised themselves with this election. They had no idea where their voters were. They, they, all of the stuff you ideally do in the long campaign where you, you know, identify who your vote is and you get it out in the short, yeah, and you keep, you know, kind of massaging it and reassuring it in the short campaign. Yeah. Instead, they were like, well, I guess we want to win... <laughs> Bassett Law. What is a Bassett Law? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, and and kind of yeah, the, the campaign sort of struggled because they they kind of started in in such a different. They have known they're going to do this for a long time, so yeah. you would assume that back of house stuff will be better. But one way or the other, the ways that this campaign has not started well are fundamentally different from the ways the last campaign did not start or indeed middle or end well, which means that however it plays out, I think we'll have quite different consequences. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And the question you are asking us is, what is the significance of the new speaker? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's interesting to get a new speaker when we're just about to sort of go into a period where the speaker doesn't have any airtime and doesn't sit and doesn't do any of the speaker things that they do. So people will probably forget about Lindsay Hoyle, who is the person who will be taking over from John Burko um, until the next time that they come and sit after the election campaign, where the parliament could look very different. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing in that one of the slightly weird things about the speaker election is all of the candidates basically ran as, I will be like John Burko, but not like that. (laughs) And with the, well, with two exceptions, Meg Hillier, who fought a very brave campaign, but unsurprisingly only got 10 votes on her ticket of, 
I, I, I thought it was brilliant when she stood up and went, look, we know there are lists of MPs who are good to work for and MPs who are bad to work for. <laughs> it was just like, I am so intrigued as to who is going to back this ticket of, come on, guys, we're banged to rise. Yeah, I wonder if the people who backed it were like double bluffing. <laughs> yeah. No, they're actually on the list. And yeah, it was, I'm really glad that an MP stood up yeah. for that, but there was never any pro- prospect of it, of it getting anything close to like enough votes to win. Harriet Harman, who got 70-something votes, ran as essentially the only kind of pure continuity candidate. Yeah. And everyone else kind of ran on a kind of like... Yeah, because you had this slight weirdness where they all said, well, on the big decisions, yeah, allowing a forthwith motion to be amended. Yeah. On all of the kind of key decisions which mattered in Brexit, they were like, yeah, I, I would have done that too because you've got to facilitate the will of the House. What they all then basically want is, but I won't be like that. And mm. like that encompasses a huge range of, of things, right? So... um being seen to have, you know, a specific set of opinions about Brexit, yeah. um, what some people felt was belligerence towards MPs in the chair. Small things actually just like picking the same people in the same order to speak. Um, yeah. Lots of people who feel it was hard for them to get called. Now, Hoyle chose to use his opening speech to kind of go, things are going to change, you know, the standing of the House has been bad, which lots of people, including some people who voted for him, were a bit like, whoa. But yeah. then, of course, the day after was immediately like, of course... Here is an urgent question for Dominic Grieve. And I think the, the weird thing is, is I kind of think that how different Hoyle's era ends up being will largely be a result, an artefact of what is the result of the 2019 election. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, the, the beauty of, of Burko's speakership, if, like me, you were broadly a fan of it, is that it would only have happened in a situation where a majority government knew it was going to lose power decided, yeah, why wouldn't we have someone as speaker for a year who is really into finding ways to inconvenience the executive? It's someone else's problem. Yeah. And then <laughs> I think would not have survived if you hadn't had a prolonged period of majorityless government. I think if there had been a Conservative government with a majority of 70 in 2010 as opposed to a Conlib coalition with a majority of 70, yeah. I just can't see how they would have got to 2015 and gone, do you know what we really love? People sabotaging executive power. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. it just didn't matter in that brief period when they had a majority because they were flush with having a majority. There was Brexit, there were other things going on. And then it mattered a great deal in this phase when his main achievement, I think, was ensuring that the 2017 election had consequences in terms of how Parliament organised itself. Yeah. And then people weren't just allowed to pretend that the loss of the majority didn't mean anything. Yeah. But, but in the event that there is no loss of a majority next time, then the Speaker will be quite pro-government because there is no contradiction then between being pro the will of the House and pro the government yeah. most of the time. And I suspect if we have another hung Parliament, then a lot of people who went, oh, brilliant, there's a new broom, will be like, oh, this new Speaker is... Is terrible because I think some of the Burko stuff, not all, I think some of it was fair enough, but most of the Burko stuff was kind of psychosis about the loss of the majority. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And a sort of misunderstanding of what the Speaker's role is, you know, perhaps coming from a period, like you say, of majority governments into this strange sort of since the coalition passing over David Cameron's majority. But since the coalition, we've sort of had these odd arrangements in the House where there's no 
proper majority or parties are very split and so it's really difficult for the executive to get things done that's when the speaker comes into the limelight because they are supposed to be championing the will of the backbenchers the will of the house and making sure that there's that check against the executive and that's only obvious when you do have a weak executive for whatever reason even if it's not just straight numbers and also more importantly perhaps in this era where everyone is rightly worried about the tone that our politics has taken the speaker can try and set the tone of the of the commons i remember speaking to betty boothroyd about this who was a iconic speaker from parliament's history who was who was discussing john burko's speakership with me and she was saying you know that she really did think that the tone of the way that mps speak in the house of commons has really changed and although she's no sort of champion of the house of lords she she was saying that the the way that debates are um, conducted in the house of lords should be more of a model for for mps and i know we always get like david cameron saying he wanted to put an end to punch and judy politics and lindsay hoyle saying that the house was not you know seen in seen fondly by the public at the moment but you know if he really wanted to he could attempt to change that tone of parliament in some way yeah i think it's because it's one of those things where, yeah, obviously the Lords has been just as roiled and divided by mm. Brexit and economics and, and, and the rest. But the just the tone of it is very different. Interestingly, yeah, like, actually there are fewer rules. Mm. Um, it is one of those examples, I think, where actually it turns out if you give people more power, they tend to be more responsible because they have to be. Yeah. You know, now there are lots of situations where I don't necessarily think that applies, but I think you know, in this instance, I think it is an interesting example. But yeah, I guess I really see the answer is it depends because it depends on the result of the election. And there's a new report called The State of Hunger by the Trussell Trust, which is about the use of food banks in the United Kingdom and why it happens. Talk me through why it happens. Okay, so basically this report is the most comprehensive bit of research and survey into why people use food banks in Britain. And they've never done one like this before. They did a pilot in 2017 because they noticed numbers going going up. But this is the first time they've actually done this research with academics as well. And the findings are really stark, mainly uncomfortably for the government, because one of the main drivers of the increase in food bank use, which is now at a record high, are welfare reforms, Tory welfare reforms that were brought in since 2010 onwards. Benefit sanctions, the bedroom tax, the fact that benefit levels are lower than they were before, changes to disability benefits and also universal credit, which has an inbuilt five-week wait for your first payment. This is one of three main reasons why people are going to food banks in higher numbers than ever before. And, you know, just looking at the research, there's just... It's really difficult for the government to counter what what the findings say. Amber Rudd, when she was Working Pensions Secretary, accepted in the House of Commons that universal credit had been a factor in rising food bank use. It's really difficult for them to deny it. So it will be interesting to see if there's anything that they'll say during the election campaign, but beyond about benefits and whether or not they they'll make any ch- more changes to stop people going hungry in 2019 Britain, which is just a really bad look for the government. And aside from that, there's two other big reasons. One of them is about sort of ill health, um, life circumstances, housing. And the third one is about isolation. So a lack of local support, but also a lack of informal support networks. So once where you could have relied on your family or your local community, that kind of link just isn't there sufficiently for the people who are so desperate and that they need to go to food banks anymore. 
partly interestingly because there there just aren't that many places for people to go and gather for free in their community anymore which is something that we've been talking about in the new statesman for a while about the lack of public space and the reduction in public space partly because of austerity but also because of sort of market forces the decline in town centers and on high streets as well and so when you say health related what what are those specific cool yeah what why are what are the health related reasons that people end up resorting to food bank I, I i don't know the exact proportion of health health conditions that lead to food bank use but mental health is a big big one which has sort of been underexplored and the fact that we don't have that much funding for community mental health support i mean you either have to be in a crisis in which case you go to hospital or you sort of go to your gp or a and e and you don't really get that much attention because of the way that our nhs is funded and because of the way that it's quite stretched so there's not that day-to-day mental health support for people anymore and which means that they might lose their job or they might you know all sorts of things can happen to them they might end up not being able to pay their rent for whatever reason they might be estranged for their from their family because of that illness that they have and they end up needing to come to a food bank for food but also sometimes for company as well like I've spoken to people in food banks before who were there but they don't have a food voucher they just want to come in for a cup of tea and if any listeners have ever been to a food bank they usually set up as a sort of semi-cafe so you can sit around a table and have a cup of tea rather than just sort of line up for your food and then leave so that's a problem which would also could also do with being addressing through funding for social care which we've spoken about a lot on the podcast before and um, funding for the NHS as well and so in terms of the kind of loneliness and isolation Mm. um, so obviously part of it is community centres closing part of it is the high street changing yeah and yeah and the way we kind of organize ourselves from a societal so would you say of the three that's basically the hardest one to solve even though the big cause is actually a fairly easy lever to pull in government. Yeah. The second one about mental health is a more difficult lever because it's partly about funding, but also about the fact that our health service, as with all free at the point of use health services, is designed around what used to kill and make people sick in the 40s, 50s or 60s, yeah, yeah. depending on which European state you're in and how you, you arrange and, and, and build your health service in a different world is sort of a bigger challenge whereas the third one is the most difficult one in terms of working out a solution yeah it really is the reason that charities rightly focus on the five-week wait for universal credit is because that's something that's really easy for government to change that's something by design in the system that they could just reverse and not have anymore and it's just about making that argument so they change that but the loneliness and isolation factor is really hard because it's all fits for all sorts of reasons some are straightforward like we said about the cuts to local community centres, childcare, youth clubs, libraries, etc. But some of it is to do with the high street. And then also you have the fact that we just connect with people differently now. So a lot of those connections are online where they used to be face-to-face. We're more itinerant as as people so we're probably more likely to be living away from our families and support networks than we used to be and also someone who runs a food bank in Worcester was saying that he'd noticed that people are living in longer term poverty now so where as he he told me from his own experience whereas you used to fall on hard times and you might live hand to mouth for a few weeks and you know your neighbours would have to help you out and it would be you know grim but you'd come out of it now that's you know that period of 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 poverty it's much harder to pull yourself out of that partly because those support networks that we've spoken about aren't there and that can take a toll on your family relationships so whereas before you used to be able to say to whoever can you lend me some money now 
it's much harder to do that for that length of time and also your family members or the people who live around you might also be struggling as well and might have been struggling for a really long time so that's an interesting social change that I haven't read a huge amount about but um, that seems to be one of the challenges to this as well. This week's New Statesman podcast was presented by me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Anusha Kellyan. It was recorded by me and Anoush because Emily is ill. Apologies in advance for the sound quality. Our indifferent recording efforts were saved by our producer Nick Hilton. Our music is, is licensed under Creative Commons and is still, to my considerable regret, devil by the devil. If you like the New Statesman podcast, please do leave a review and do ask us a question on Twitter or via email. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.